The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Chapter 8 of The Man Who Knew by Edgar Wallace this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sergeant Smith Calls The big library of Wheeled Lodge was brilliantly lighted, and nobody had pulled down the blinds, so that it was possible for any man who troubled to jump the low stone wall which ran by the road and push away through the damp shrubbery to see all that was happening in the room. Wheeled Lodge stands between Eastbourne and Wilmington, and in the winter months the curious represented by youthful holiday-makers are few and far between. Constable Wiseman, of the Eastbourne Constabulary, certainly was not curious. He paced his slow, moist way and merely noted, in passing, the fact that the flood of light reflected on the little patch of lawn at the side of the house. The hour was nine o'clock on a June evening, and officially it was only the hour of sunset though lowering rain-clouds had so darkened the world that night had closed down upon the weald, had blotted out its pleasant villages, and had hidden the green downs. He continued to the end of his beat, and met his impatient superior. "'Everything's all right, Sergeant,' he reported. "'Only old minutes' lights are blazing away, and his windows are open.' "'Better go and warn him,' said the sergeant, pulling his bicycle into position for mounting. He had his foot on the treadle, but hesitated. I'd warn him myself, but I don't think he'd be glad to see me. He grinned to himself, then remarked, Something queer about Minute, eh? There is indeed, agreed Constable Wiseman heartily. His beat was a lonely one, and he was a very bored man. If by agreement with his officer he could induce that loquacious gentleman to talk for a quarter of an hour, so much dull time might be passed. The fact that Sergeant Smith was loquacious indicated, too, that he had been drinking and was ready to quarrel with anybody. "'Come under the shelter of that wall,' said the sergeant, and pushed his machine to the protection afforded by the side wall of a house. It is possible that the sergeant was anxious to impress upon his subordinate's mind a point of view which might be useful to himself one day. "'Minute is a dangerous old man,' he said. "'Don't I know it?' said Constable Wiseman with the recollection of sundry reportings and inquiries. you got to remember that, Wiseman, the sergeant went on, and by dangerous I mean that he's the sort of old fellow that would ask a constable to come in to have a drink and then report him. Good Lord, said the shocked Mr. Wiseman, at this revelation of the blackest treachery. Sergeant Smith nodded. That's the sort of man he is, he said. I knew him years ago. At least I've seen him. I was in Matabella land with him, and I tell you there's nothing too mean for ready money minute. Curse him. I'll bet you have had a terrible life, Sergeant, encouraged Constable Wiseman. The other laughed bitterly. I have, he said. Sergeant Smith's acquaintance with Eastbourne was a short one. He had only been four years in the town, and had, so rumor ran, owed his promotion to influence. What that influence was none could say. It had been suggested that John Minnett himself had secured him his sergeant's stripes, 
But that was a theory which was pooh-poohed by people who knew that the sergeant had little that was good to say of his supposed patron. Constable Wiseman, a profound thinker and a secret reader of sensational detective stories, had at one time made a report against John Bennett for some technical offense, and had made it in fear and trembling, expecting his sergeant promptly to squash this attempt to persecute his patron. But to his surprise and delight, Sergeant Smith had furthered his efforts and had helped to secure the conviction which involved a fine. "'You go on and finish your beat, Constable,' said the sergeant suddenly and I'll ride up to the old devil's house and see what's doing. He mounted his bicycle and trundled up the hill, dismounting before Wheeled Lodge, and propped his bicycle against the wall. He looked for a long time toward the open French windows, and then, jumping the wall, made his way slowly across the lawn, avoiding the gravel path which would betray his presence. He got to a point opposite the window which commanded a full view of the room. Though the window was open, there was a fire in the grate. To the sergeant's satisfaction, John Minnett was alone. He sat in a deep armchair in his favorite attitude, his hands pushed into his pockets, his head upon his chest. He heard the sergeant's foot upon the gravel and stood up as the rain-drenched figure appeared at the open window. "'Oh, it's you, is it?' growled John Minnett. "'What do you want?' "'Alone?' said the sergeant, and he spoke as one to his equal. "'Come in!' Mr. Minnett's library had been furnished by the Artistic Furniture Company of Eastbourne, which had branches at Hastings, Bexhill, Brighton, and, it was claimed, at London. The furniture was of dark oak, busily carved. There was a large bookcase which half covered one wall. This was the library, and it was filled with books of uniform binding which occupied the shelves. The books had been supplied by a great bookseller of London and included, at Mr. Minnett's suggestion, the hundred best books, books that have helped me, the Encyclopedia Brillonica, and twenty bound volumes of a certain weekly periodical of international reputation. John Minnett had no literary leanings. The sergeant hesitated, wiped his heavy boots on the sodden mat outside the window, and walked into the room. "'You are pretty cozy, John,' he said. "'What do you want?' asked Minnett without enthusiasm. I thought I'd look you up. My constable reported your windows were open, and I felt it my duty to come along and warn you. There are thieves about John. I know of one, said John Minnett, looking at the other steadily. Your constable, as you call him, is, I presume, that thick-headed jackass Wiseman. Got him first time, said the sergeant, removing his waterproof cape. I don't often trouble you, but somehow I had a feeling I'd like to see you tonight. My constable revived old memories, John. Unpleasant for you, I hope, said John Minnett ungraciously. There's a nice little gold farm four hundred miles north of Guello, said Sergeant Smith meditatively. And a nice little breakwater half a mile south of Cape Town, said John Minnett, where the Cape government keeps highwaymen who hold up the Salisbury coach and rob the mails. Sergeant Smith smiled. You will have your little joke, he said but I might remind you that they have plenty of accommodation on the breakwater, John. They even take care of men who have stolen land and murdered natives. What do you want? asked John Minnett again. The other grinned. Just a pleasant little friendly visit, he explained. I haven't looked you up for twelve months. It is a hard life, this police work, even when you have got two or three pounds a week from a private source to add to your pay. 
It is nothing like the work we have in the Matabele Mounted Police, eh, John? But, Lord, he said, looking into the fire thoughtfully, when I think how I stood up in the attorney's office at Salisbury and took my solemn oath that old John Getting had transferred his Sabak gold claims to you on his deathbed, when I think of the amount of perjury, me, a uniformed servant of the British South African Company, and, so to speak, an official of the law, I blush for myself. Do you ever blush for yourself when you think of how you and your pals held up Hoffman's store, shot Hoffman, and took his swag? asked John Bennett. I'd give a lot of money to see you blush, Crawley. And now, for about the fourteenth time, what do you want? If it is money, you can't have it. If it is more promotion, you are not fit to have it. If it is a word of advice... The other stopped him with a motion of his hand. I can't afford to have your advice, John, he said. All I know is that you promised me my fair share over those Sabak claims. It is a paying mine now. They tell me that its capital is two millions. You were well paid, said John Bennett shortly. Five hundred pounds isn't much for the surrender of your soul's salvation, said Sergeant Smith. He slowly replaced his cape on his broad shoulders and walked to the window. Listen here, John Minnett. All the good nature had gone out of his voice, and it was Trooper Henry Crawley, the lawbreaker, who spoke. You are not going to satisfy me much longer with a few pounds a week. You have got to do the right thing by me, or I am going to blow. Let me know when your blowing starts, said John Minnett, and I'll send you a bowl of soup to cool. You're funny, but you don't amuse me, were the last words of the sergeant as he walked into the rain. As before, he avoided the drive and jumped over the low wall on to the road, and was glad that he had done so, for a motor-car swung into the drive and pulled up before the dark doorway of the house. He was over the wall again in an instant, and crossing with swift, noiseless steps in the direction of the car. He got as close as he could and listened. Two of the voices he recognized. The third, that of a man, was a stranger. He heard this third person called Inspector, and wondered who was the guest. His curiosity was not to be satisfied, for by the time he had reached the view-place on the lawn which overlooked the library, John Minnett had closed the windows and pulled down the blinds. The visitors to Weald Lodge were three, Jasper Cole, May Nuttall, and a stout middle-aged man of slow speech but authoritative tone. This was Inspector Nash, of Scotland Yard, who was in charge of the investigations into the forgeries. Minnett received them in the library. He knew the inspector of old. Jasper had brought May down in response to the telegraphed instructions which John Minnett had sent him. "'What's the news?' he asked. "'Well, I think I have found your Mr. Holland,' said the inspector. He took a fat case from his inside pocket, opened it, and extracted a snapshot photograph. It represented a big motor car, and standing by its bonnet, a little man in a chauffeur's uniform. This is the fellow who called himself Rex Holland, and who sent the commissionaire on his errand. The photograph came into my possession as the result of an accident. It was discovered in the flood and had evidently fallen out of the man's pocket. I made inquiries and found that it was taken by a small photographer in Putney, and that the man had called for the photographs about ten o'clock in the morning of the same day that he sent the commissionaire on his errand. He was probably examining them during the period of his waiting in the flat, and one of them slipped to the ground. At any rate, the commissionaire has no doubt that this was the man. 
Do you seriously suggest that this fellow was Rex Holland? The inspector shook his head. I think he is merely one of the gang, he said. I don't believe you will ever find Rex Holland, for each of the gang took the name in turn to take the part, according to the circumstances in which they found themselves. I have been unable to identify him, except that he went by the name of Feltham, and was an Australian. That was the name he gave to the photographer with whom he talked. You see, the photograph was taken in High Street, Putney. The only clue we have is that he has been seen several times on the Portsmouth Road, driving one or two cars in which was a man who is probably the nearest approach to Rex Holland we shall get. I put my men on to make further investigations, and the Hasselmere police told them that it is believed that the car was the property of a gentleman who lived in a lock-up cottage some distance from Hasselmere. Evidently rather a swagger affair, because its owner had an electric cable and telephone wires laid in, and the cottage was altered and renovated twelve months ago at a very considerable cost. I shall be able to tell you more about that tomorrow. They spent the rest of the evening discussing the crime, and the girl was a silent listener. It was not until very late that John Minnett was able to give her his undivided attention. I asked you to come down, he said, because I am getting a little worried about you. Worried about me, uncle? she said in surprise. He nodded. The two men had gone off to Jasper's study, and she was alone with her uncle. When I lunched with you the other day at the Savoy, he said, I spoke to you about your marriage, and I asked you to defer any action for a fortnight. She nodded. I was coming down to see you on that very matter, she said. Uncle, won't you tell me why you want me to delay my marriage for a fortnight, and why you think I am going to get married at all? He did not answer immediately, but paced up and down the room. May, he said, you have heard a great deal about me which is not very flattering. I lived a very rough life in South Africa, and I only had one friend in the world in whom I had the slightest confidence. That friend was your father. He stood by me in my bad times. He never worried me when I was flush of money, never denied me when I was broke. Whenever he helped me, he was content with what reward I offered him. There was no fifty-fifty with Bill Nuttall. He was a man who had no ambition, no avarice, the whitest man I have ever met. What I have not told you about him is this. He and I were equal partners in a mine, the Guello Deep. He had great faith in the mine, and I had none at all. I knew it to be one of those properties you sometimes get in Rhodesia, all pocket and outcrop. Anyway, we floated a company. He stopped and chuckled as at an amusing memory. The pound shares were worth a little less than sixpence until a fortnight ago. He looked at her with one of those swift, penetrating glances, as though he were anxious to discover her thoughts. A fortnight ago, he said, I learned from my agent in Bulawayo that a reef had been struck on an adjoining mine, and that the reef runs through our property. If that is true, you will be a rich woman in your own right, apart from the money you get from me. I cannot tell you whether it is true until I have heard from the engineers, who are now examining the property and I cannot know that for a fortnight. May, you were a dear girl, he said, and laid his hand on her arm, and I have looked after you as though you were my own daughter. It is a happiness to me to know that you will be a very rich woman, because your father's shares was the only property you inherited from him. There is, however, one curious thing about it that I cannot understand. 
He walked over to the bureau, unlocked a drawer, and took out a letter. My agent says that he advised me two years ago that this reef existed, and wondered why I had never given him authority to bore. I have no recollection of his ever having told me anything of the sort. Now you know the position, he said, putting back the letter and closing the drawer with a bang. You want me to wait for a better match, said the girl. He inclined his head. I don't want you to get married for a fortnight, he repeated. May Nuttall went to bed that night full of doubt and more than a little unhappy. The story that John Minnett told about her father, was it true? Was it a story invented on the spur of the moment to counter Frank's plan? She thought of Frank in his almost solemn entreaty. There had been no mistaking his earnestness or his sincerity. If he would only take her into his confidence, and yet she recognized and was surprised at the revelation that she did not want that confidence. She wanted to help Frank very badly, and it was not the romance of the situation which appealed to her. There was a large sense of duty, something of that mother's sense which every woman possesses, which tempted her to sacrifice. Yet was it a sacrifice? She debated that question half the night, tossing from side to side. She could not sleep, and rising before the dawn, slipped into her dressing-gown and went to the window. The rain had ceased, clouds had broken and stood in black bars against the silver light of dawn. She felt unaccountably hungry, and after a second's hesitation she opened the door and went down the broad stairs to the hall. To reach the kitchen she had to pass her uncle's door, and she noticed that it was ajar. She thought possibly he had gone to bed and left the light on, and her hand was on the knob to investigate when she heard a voice and drew back hurriedly. It was the voice of Jasper Cole. I had been into the books very carefully with Mackinson, the accountant, and there seems no doubt, he said. You think, demanded her uncle. I am certain, answered Jasper in his even passionless tone. The fraud has been worked by Frank. He had access to the books. He was the only person who saw Rex Holland. He was the only official at the bank who could possibly falsify the entries and at the same time hide his trail. The girl turned cold and for a moment swayed as though she would faint. She clutched the jamb of the door for support and waited. "'I am half inclined to your belief,' said John Minnett slowly. "'It is awful to believe that Frank is a forger, as his father was. Awful!' "'It is pretty ghastly,' said Jasper's voice, "'but it is true.' The girl flung open the door and stood in the doorway. "'It is a lie!' she cried wrathfully. "'A horrible lie!' And you know it is a lie, Jasper. Without another word, she turned, slamming the door behind her. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of The Man Who Knew by Edgar Wallace This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Frank Merrill at the Altar Frank Merrill stepped through the swing doors of the London and Western Counties Bank with a light heart and a smile in his eyes, and went straight to his chief's office. "'I shall want you to let me go out this afternoon for an hour,' he said. Brandon looked up wearily. He had not been without his sleepless moments, and the strain of the forgery and the audit which followed was telling heavily upon him. He nodded a silent agreement, and Frank went back to his desk, humming a tune. He had every reason to be happy, for in his pocket was the special license which, for consideration, had been granted to him 
and which empowered him to marry the girl whose amazing telegram had arrived that morning while he was at breakfast. It had contained only four words. Marry you today, May. He could not guess what extraordinary circumstances had induced her to take so definite a view, but he was a very contented and happy young man. She was to arrive in London soon after twelve, and he had arranged to meet her at the station and take her to lunch. Perhaps then she would explain the reason for her action. He numbered among his acquaintances the rector of a suburban church, who had agreed to perform the ceremony and to provide the necessary witnesses. He was a beaming young man that met the girl, but the smile left his face when he saw how wan and haggard she was. "'Take me somewhere,' she said quickly. "'Are you ill?' he asked anxiously. She shook her head. They had the Pall Mall restaurant to themselves, for it was too early for the regular lunchers. "'Now tell me, dear,' he said, catching her hands over the table, "'to what do I owe this wonderful decision?' I cannot tell you, Frank, she said breathlessly. I don't want to think about it. All I know is that people have been beastly about you. I am going to do all I possibly can to make up for it. She was a little hysterical and very much overwrought, and he decided not to press the question, though her words puzzled him. Where are you going to stay? he asked. I am staying at the Savoy, she replied. What am I to do? In as few words as possible, he told her where the ceremony was to be performed, and the hour at which she must leave the hotel. "'We will take the night train for the continent,' he said. "'But your work, Frank?' He laughed. "'Oh, blow work!' he cried hilariously. "'I cannot think of work today.' At two-fifteen he was waiting in the vestry for the girl's arrival, chatting with his friend the rector. He had arranged for the ceremony to be performed at two-thirty, and the witnesses, a glum verger and a woman engaged in cleaning the church, sat in the pews of the empty building, waiting to earn the guinea which they had been promised. The conversation was about nothing in particular, one of those empty, purposeless exchanges of banal thought and speech characteristic of such an occasion. At two-thirty Frank looked at his watch and walked out of the church to the end of the road. There was no sign of the girl. At two-forty-five he crossed to a providential tobacconist, and telephoned to the Savoy and was told that the lady had left half an hour before. "'She ought to be here very soon,' he said to the priest. He was a little impatient, a little nervous, and terribly anxious. As the church clock struck three, the rector turned to him. "'I am afraid I cannot marry you today, Mr. Merrill,' he said. Frank was very pale. "'Why not?' he asked quickly. "'Miss Nuttall has probably been detained by the traffic or a burst tire.' She will be here very shortly. The minister shook his head and hung up his white surplice in the cupboard. The law of the land, my dear Mr. Merrill, he said, does not allow weddings after three in the afternoon. You can come along tomorrow morning any time after eight. There was a tap at the door and Frank swung round. It was not the girl, but a telegraph boy. He snatched the buff envelope from the lad's hand and tore it open. It read simply, The wedding cannot take place. It was unsigned. At 2.15 that afternoon May had passed through the vestibule of the hotel, and her foot was on the step of the taxicab when a hand fell upon her arm, and she turned in alarm to meet the searching eyes of Jasper Cole. "'Where are you off to in such a hurry, May?' She flushed and drew her arm away with a decisive gesture. 
I have nothing to say to you, Jasper, she said coldly. After your horrible charge against Frank, I never want to speak to you again. He winced a little, then smiled. At least you can be civil to an old friend, he said good-humouredly, and tell me where you are off to in such a hurry. Should she tell him? A moment's indecision, and then she spoke. I am going to marry Frank Merrill, she said. He nodded. I thought as much. In that case, I am coming down to the church to make a scene. He said this with a smile on his lips, but there was no mistaking the resolution which showed in the thrust of his square jaw. What do you mean, she said. Don't be absurd, Jasper. My mind is made up. I mean, he said quietly, that I have Mr. Minnett's power of attorney to act for him, and Mr. Minnett happens to be your legal guardian. You are, in point of fact, my dear May, more or less of a ward, and you cannot marry before you are twenty-one without your guardian's consent. I shall be twenty-one next week, she said defiantly. Then, smiled the other, wait till next week before you marry. There is no very pressing hurry. You force this situation upon me, said the girl hotly, and I think it is very horrid of you. I am going to marry Frank today. Under those circumstances, I must come down and forbid the marriage, and when our parson asks if there is any just cause, I shall step forward to the rails, gaily flourishing the power of attorney, and not even the most hardened parson could continue in the face of that legal instrument. It is a mandamus, a caveat, and all sorts of horrific things. Why are you doing this? she asked. Because I have no desire that you shall marry a man who was certainly a forger, and possibly a murderer said Jasper Cole calmly. "'I won't listen to you!' she cried, and stepped into the waiting taxicab. Without a word, Jasper followed her. "'You can't turn me out,' he said, "'and I know where you are going anyway, "'because you were giving directions to the driver "'when I stood behind you. "'You had better let me go with you. "'I like the suburbs.' She turned and faced him swiftly. "'And Silver's rents?' she asked. He went a shade paler. "'What do you know about Silver's rents?' he demanded, recovering himself with an effort. She did not reply. The taxicab was halfway to its destination before the girl spoke again. "'Are you serious when you say you will forbid the marriage?' "'Quite serious,' he replied. "'So much so that I shall bring in a policeman to witness my act.' The girl was nearly in tears. "'It is monstrous of you. Uncle wouldn't—' Had you not better see your uncle? he asked. Something told her that he would keep his word. She had a horror of scenes, and worst of all, she feared the meeting of the two men under these circumstances. Suddenly she leaned forward and tapped the window, and the taxi slowed down. Tell him to go back and call at the nearest telegraph office. I want to send a wire. If it is to Mr. Frank Merrill, said Jasper smoothly, you may save yourself the trouble. I have already wired. Frank came back to London in a pardonable fury. He drove straight to the hotel, only to learn that the girl had left again with her uncle. He looked at his watch. He had still some work to do at the bank, though he had little appetite for work. Yet it was to the bank he went. He threw a glance over the counter to the table in the chair where he had sat for so long and at which he was destined never to sit again, for as he was passing behind the counter Mr. Brandon met him. "'Your uncle wishes to see you, Mr. Merrill,' he said gravely. Frank hesitated, then walked into the office, closing the door behind him, and he noticed that Mr. Brandon did not attempt to follow. 
John Minnett sat in the one easy chair and looked up heavily as Frank entered. Sit down, Frank, he said. I have a lot of things to ask you. And I have one or two things to ask you, Uncle, said Frank calmly. If it is about May, you can save yourself the trouble, said the other. If it is about Mr. Rex Holland, I can give you a little information. Frank looked at him steadily. I don't quite get your meaning, sir, he said, though I gather there is something offensive behind what you have said. John Minnett twisted round in the chair and threw one leg over its padded arm. Frank, he said, I want you to be perfectly straight with me, and I'll be as perfectly straight with you. The young man made no reply. Certain facts have been brought to my attention, which leave no doubt in my mind as to the identity of the alleged Mr. Rex Holland, said John Minnett slowly. I don't relish saying this, because I have liked you, Frank, though I have sometimes stood in your way and we have not seen eye to eye together. Now I want you to come down to Eastbourne tomorrow and have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with me. What do you expect I can tell you? asked Frank quietly. I want you to tell me the truth. I expect you won't, said John Minnett. A half-smile played for a second upon Frank's lips. At any rate, he said, you are being straight with me. I don't know exactly what you are driving at, Uncle, but I gather that it is something rather unpleasant, and that somewhere in the background there is hovering an accusation against me. From the fact that you have mentioned Mr. Rex Holland or the gang which went by that name, I suppose that you are suggesting that I am an accomplice of that gentleman. I suggest more than that, said the other quickly. I suggest that you are Rex Holland. Frank laughed aloud. It is no laughing matter, said John Minnett sternly. From your point of view it is not, said Frank, but from my point of view it has certain humorous aspects, and unfortunately I am cursed with a sense of humor. I hardly know how I can go into the matter here. He looked round. For even if this is the time, it is certainly not the place, and I think I'll accept your invitation to come down to Weald Lodge tomorrow night. I gather you won't want to travel down with a master criminal who might at any moment take your watch and chain. I wish you would look at this matter more seriously, Frank, said John Minnett earnestly. I want to get to the truth, and any truth which exonerates you will be very welcome to me. Frank nodded. I will give you credit for that, he said. You may expect me tomorrow. May I ask you as a personal favor that you will not discuss this matter with me in the presence of your admirable secretary? I have a feeling at the back of my mind that he is at the bottom of all this. Remember that he is as likely to know about Rex Holland as I. There has been an audit at the bank, Frank went on, and I am not so stupid that I don't understand what this has meant. There has also been a certain coldness in the attitude of Brandon, and I have intercepted suspicious and meaning glances from the clerks. I shall not be surprised, therefore, if you tell me that my books are not in order. But again, I would point out to you that this is just as possible for Jasper, who has access to the bank at all hours of the day and night, to have altered them as it is for me. I hasten to add, he said with a smile, that I don't accuse Jasper. He is such a machine, and I cannot imagine him capable of so much initiative as systematically to forge checks and falsify ledgers. I merely mention Jasper because I want to emphasize the injustice of putting any man under suspicion unless you have the strongest and most convincing proof of his guilt. To declare my innocence is unnecessary from my point of view, and probably from yours also. But I declare to you, Uncle John, 
that I know no more about this matter than you. He stood leaning on the desk and looking down at his uncle, and John Minnett, with all his experience of men, and for all his suspicions, felt just a twinge of remorse. It was not to last long, however. I shall expect you tomorrow, he said. Frank nodded, walked out of the room and out of the bank, and twenty-four pairs of speculative eyes followed him. A few hours later, another curious scene was being enacted, this time near the town of East Grinstead. There was a lonely stretch of road across a heath, which is called for some reason Ashdown Forest. A car was drawn up on a patch of turf by the side of the heath. Its owner was sitting in a little clearing out of view of the road, sipping a cup of tea which his chauffeur had made. He finished this and watched his servant take the basket. "'Come back to me when you have finished,' he said. The man touched his hat and disappeared with the package, but returned again in a few minutes. "'Sit down, Feltham,' said Mr. Rex Holland. "'I dare say you think it was rather strange of me to give you that little commission the other day,' said Mr. Holland, crossing his legs and leaning back against a tree. The chauffeur smiled uncomfortably. "'Yes, sir, I did,' he said shortly. "'Were you satisfied with what I gave you?' asked the man. The chauffeur shuffled his feet uneasily. "'Quite satisfied, sir,' he said. "'You seem a little distraught, Feltham. I mean, a little upset about something. What is it?' The man coughed in embarrassed confusion. "'Well, sir,' he began, "'the fact is, I don't like it.' "'You don't like what? The five hundred pounds I gave you?' "'No, sir, it is not that, but it was a queer thing to ask me to do. Pretend to be you and send a commissionaire to the bank for your money, and then get away out of London to a quiet little hole like Pilstead. So you think it was queer? The chauffeur nodded. The fact is, sir, he blurted out, I've seen the papers. The other nodded thoughtfully. I presume you mean the newspapers. And what is there in the newspapers that interests you? Mr. Holland took a gold case from his pocket, opened it languidly, and selected a cigarette. He was closing it when he caught the chauffeur's eye and tossed a cigarette to him. "'Thank you, sir,' said the man. "'What was it you didn't like?' asked Mr. Holland again, passing a match. "'Well, sir, I've been in all sorts of queer places,' said Felton doggedly, as he puffed away at the cigarette. "'But I've always managed to keep clear of anything funny. Do you see what I mean?' "'By funny, I presume you don't mean comic,' said Mr. Rex Holland cheerfully. You mean dishonest, I suppose? That's right, sir, and there's no doubt that I have been in a swindle, and it's worrying me, that bank forgery case. Why, I read my own description in the paper. Beads of perspiration stood upon the little man's forehead, and there was a pathetic droop to his mouth. That is a distinction which falls to few of us, said his employer suavely. You ought to feel highly honored. And what are you going to do about it, Feltham? The man looked to left and right as though seeking some friend in need who would step forth with ready-made advice. "'The only thing I can do, sir,' he said, "'is to give myself up.' "'And give me up, too,' said the other, with a little laugh. "'Oh, no, my dear Feltham. Listen, I will tell you something. A few weeks ago I had a very promising valet chauffeur just like you. He was an admirable man, and he was also a foreigner. I believe he was a Swede.' He came to me under exactly the same circumstances as you arrived, and he received exactly the same instructions as you have received, which unfortunately he did not carry out to the letter. I caught him pilfering from me, 
a few trinkets of no great value, and instead of the foolish fellow repenting, he blurted out the one fact which I did not wish him to know, and incidentally which I did not wish anybody in the world to know. He knew who I was. He had seen me in the West End and had discovered my identity. He even sought an interview with someone to whom it would have been inconvenient to have made known my character. I promised to find him another job, but he had already decided upon changing and had cut out an advertisement from a newspaper. I parted friendly with him, wished him luck, and he went off to interview his possible employer, smoking one of my cigarettes just as you are smoking, and he threw it away, I have no doubt, just as you have thrown it away when it began to taste a little bitter. Look here, said the chauffeur, and scrambled to his feet. If you try any monkey tricks with me, Mr. Holland eyed him with interest. If you try any monkey tricks with me, said the chauffeur thickly, I'll... He pitched forward on his face and lay still. Mr. Holland waited long enough to search his pockets, and then, stepping cautiously into the road, donned the chauffeur's cap and goggles and set his car running swiftly southward. End of chapter 9《Chapter Ten of The Man Who Knew》by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Murder Constable Wiseman lived in the bosom of his admiring family in a small cottage on the Bexhill Road. That my father was a policeman was the proud boast of two small boys, a boast which entitled them to no small amount of respect because P. C. Wiseman was not only honoured in his own circle but throughout the village in which he dwelt. He was in the first place a town policeman, as distinct from a county policeman, though he wore the badge and uniform of the Sussex Constabulary. It was felt that a town policeman had more in common with crime, had a vaster experience, and was in consequence a more helpful adviser than a man whose duties began and ended in the patrolling of country lanes and law-abiding villages where nothing more exciting than an occasional dog-fight or a charge of poaching served to fill the hiatus of constabulary life. Constable Wiseman was looked upon as a shrewd fellow, a man to whom might be brought the delicate problems which occasionally perplexed and confused the bucolic mind. He had settled the vexed question as to whether a policeman could or could not enter a house where a man was beating his wife and had decided that such a trespass could only be committed if the lady involved should utter piercing cries of murder. He added significantly that the constable who was called upon must be the constable on duty, and not an ornament of the force who by accident was a resident in their midst. The problem of the strained chicken and the egg that is laid on alien property, the point of law involved in the question as to when a servant should give notice and the date from which her notice should count, all these matters came within Constable Wiseman's purview, and were solved to the satisfaction of all who brought their little obscurities for solution. But it was in his own domestic circle that Constable Wiseman, appropriately named, as all agreed, shone with an effulgence that was almost dazzling, and was a source of irritation to the male relatives on his wife's side, one of whom had unfortunately come within the grasp of the law over a matter of a snared rabbit and was in consequence predisposed to anarchy in so far as the abolition of law and order affected the police force. Constable Wiseman sat at tea one summer evening, and about the spotless white cloth which covered the table was grouped all that Constable Wiseman might legally call his. 
tea was a function, and to the younger members of the family meant just tea and bread and butter. To Constable Wiseman, it meant luxuries of a varied and costly nature. His tastes ranged from rum steak to Yarmouth bloaters, and once he had introduced a foreign delicacy, foreign to the village, which had never known before the reason for their existence, sweetbreads. The conversation, which was well sustained by Mr. Wiseman, was usually of himself, his wife being content to punctuate his autobiography with such encouraging phrases as, Dear, dear, well, whatever next? The children doing no more than ask in a whisper for more food. This they did at regular and frequent intervals, but because of their whispers they were supposed to be unheard. Constable Wiseman spoke about himself because he knew of nothing more interesting to talk about. His evening conversation usually took the form of a very full resume of his previous day's experience. He left the impression upon his wife, and glad enough she was to have such an impression, that Eastbourne was a well-conducted town mainly as a result of P.C. Wiseman's ceaseless and tireless efforts. "'I never had a clue yet that I never followed to the bitter end,' said the preening constable. "'You remember when Ragged's Orchard was robbed? Who found the thieves?' "'You did, of course. I'm sure you did,' said Mrs. Wiseman, jigging her youngest on her knee, the youngest not having arrived at the age where he recognized the necessity for expressing his desires in whispers. "'Who caught them three card-trick men after the loose races last year?' went on Constable Wiseman passionately. "'Who has had more summonses for smoking chimneys than any other man in the force?' "'Some people,' he added as he rose heavily and took down his tunic, which hung on the wall. Some people would ask for promotion, but I am perfectly satisfied. I'm not one of those ambitious sort. Why, I wouldn't know at all what to do with myself if they made me a sergeant. You deserve it anyway, said Mrs. Wiseman. I don't deserve anything I don't want, said Mr. Wiseman loftily. I've learned a few things, too, but I've never made use of what's come to me officially to get me pushed along. You'll hear something in a day or two, he said mysteriously and in high life, too, in a manner of speaking, that is, if you can call old minute high life, which I very much doubt. "'You don't say so,' said Mrs. Wiseman, appropriately amazed. Her husband nodded his head. "'There's trouble up there,' he said. "'From certain information I've received, there has been a big row between young Mr. Merrill and the old man, and the CID people have been down about it. "'What's more,' he said, "'I could tell a thing or two. I've seen that boy look at the old man as though he'd like to kill him. You wouldn't believe it, would you? But I know, and it didn't happen so long ago either. He was always snubbing him when young Merrill was down here acting as his secretary, and as good as called him a fool in front of my face when I served him with that summons for having his lights up. You'll hear something one of these days. Constable Wiseman was an excellent prophet, vague as his prophecy was. He went out of the cottage to his duty in a complacent frame of mind, which was not unusual, for Constable Wiseman was nothing if not satisfied with his fate. His complacency continued until a little after seven o'clock that evening. It so happened that Constable Wiseman, no less than every other member of the force on duty that night, had much to think about, much that was at once exciting and absorbing. It had been whispered before the evening parade that Sergeant Smith was to leave the force. There was some talk of his being dismissed, but it was clear that he had been given the opportunity of resigning, for he was still doing duty, 
which would not have been the case had he been forcibly removed. Sergeant Smith's mane and attitude had confirmed the rumor. Nobody was surprised, since this dour officer had been in trouble before. Twice had he been before the deputy chief constable for neglect of, and being drunk while on, duty. On the earlier occasions he had remarkable escapes. Some people talked of influence, but it is more likely that the man's record had helped him, for he was a first-class policeman with a nose for crime, absolutely fearless, and had, moreover, assisted in the capture of one or two very desperate criminals who had made their way to the south coast town. His last offence, however, was too grave to overlook. His inspector, going the rounds, had missed him, and after a search he was discovered outside a public house. It is no great crime to be found outside a public house, particularly when an officer has a fairly extensive area to cover, and in this respect he was well within the limits of that area. But it must be explained that the reason the sergeant was outside the public house was because he had challenged a fellow carouser to fight, and at the moment he was discovered he was stripped to the waist and setting about his task with rare workmanlike skill. He was also drunk. To have retained his services thereafter would have been little less than a crying scandal. There is no doubt, however, that Sergeant Smith had made a desperate attempt to use the influence behind him, and use it to its fullest extent. He had had one stormy interview with John Minnett, and had planned another. Constable Wiseman, patrolling the London road, his mind filled with the great news, was suddenly confronted with the object of his thoughts. The sergeant rode up to where the constable was standing in a professional attitude at the corner of two roads, and jumped off with the manner of a man who has an object in view. Wiseman, he said, and his voice was such as to suggest that he had been drinking again, where will you be at ten o'clock tonight? Constable Wiseman raised his eyes and thought, At ten o'clock, sergeant, I shall be opposite the gates of the cemetery. The sergeant looked round left and right. I am going to see Mr. Minnett on a matter of business, he said, and you needn't mention the fact. I keep myself to myself, began Constable Wiseman. What I see with one eye goes out of the other, in a manner of speaking. The sergeant nodded, stepped on to his bicycle again, turned it about, and went at full speed down the gentle incline toward Weald Lodge. He made no secret of his visit, but rode through the wide gates up the gravel drive to the front of the house, rang the bell, and to the servant who answered demanded peremptorily to see Mr. Minnett. John Minnett received him in the library, where the previous interviews had taken place. Minnett waited until the servant had gone and the door was closed, and then he said, "'Now, Crawley, there's no sense in coming to me. I can do nothing for you.' The sergeant put his helmet on the table, walked to a sideboard where a tray and decanter stood, and poured himself out a stiff dose of whiskey without invitation. John Minnett watched him without any great resentment. This was not civilized Eastbourne they were in. They were back in the old free and easy days of Guello, where men did not expect invitations to drink. Smith, or Crawley, to give him his real name, tossed down half a tumbler of neat whiskey and turned wiping his heavy moustache with the back of his hand. "'So you can't do anything, can't you?' he mimicked. "'Well, I'm going to show you that you can, and that you will.' He put up his hand to check the words on John Minnett's lips. "'There's no sense in your putting that rough stuff over me about your being able to send me to jail, because you wouldn't do it. It doesn't suit your book, John Minnett, to go into the court and testify against me. Too many things would come out in the witness box, and you will know it. 
Besides, Rhodesia is a long way off. I know a place which isn't so far distant, said the other, looking up from his chair. A place called Felixstowe, for example. There's another place called Cromer. I've been in consultation with a gentleman you may have heard of, a Mr. Saul Arthur Mann. Saul Arthur Mann, repeated the other slowly, I've never heard of him. You would not, but he has heard of you, said John Bennett calmly. The fact is, Crawley, there's a big bad record against you, between your serious crimes in Rhodesia and your blackmail of today. I have a few facts about you which will interest you. I know the date you came to this country, which I didn't know before, and I know how you earned your living until you found me. I know of some shares in a non-existent Rhodesian mine, which you sold to a feeble-minded gentleman at Cromer, and to a lady equally feeble-minded at Felixstowe. I've not only got the shares you sold with your signature as a director, but I have letters and receipts signed by you. It has cost me a lot of money to get them, but it is well worth it. Carly's face was livid. He took a step toward the other, but recoiled, for at the first hint of danger John Minnett had pulled the revolver he invariably carried. "'Keep just where you are, Crawley,' he said. "'You are close enough now to be unpleasant.' "'So you've got my record, have you?' said the other with an oath. "'Tucked away with your marriage lines, I'll bet, and the certificate of birth of the kids you left to starve with their mother.' "'Get out of here,' said Minnett, with dangerous quiet. "'Get away while you're safe.' There was something in his eye which cowed the half-drunken man, who, turning with a laugh, picked up his helmet and walked from the room. The hour was 7.35 by Constable Wiseman's watch, for, slowly patrolling back, he saw the sergeant come flying out of the gateway on his bicycle and turn down toward the town. Constable Wiseman subsequently explained that he looked at his watch because he had a regular point at which he should meet Sergeant Smith at 7.45, and he was wondering whether his superior would return. The chronology of the next three hours has been so often given in various accounts of the events which marked that evening that I may be excused if I give them in detail. A car, white with dust, turned into the stable-yard of the Star Hotel Maidstone. The driver, in a dust coat and a chauffeur's cap, descended and handed over the car to a garage-keeper, with instructions to clean it up and have it filled ready for him the following morning. He gave explicit instructions as to the number of tins of petrol he required to carry always and tipped the garage-keeper handsomely in advance. He was described as a young man with a slight black moustache, and he was wearing his motor-goggles when he went into the office of the hotel and ordered a bed and a sitting-room. Therefore his face was not seen. When his dinner was served it was remarked by the waiter that his goggles were still on his face. He gave instructions that the whole of the dinner was to be served at once and put upon the sideboard, and that he did not wish to be disturbed until he rang the bell. When the bell rang, the waiter came to find the room empty, but from the adjoining room he received orders to have breakfast by seven o'clock the following morning. At seven o'clock the driver of the car paid his bill, his big motor goggles still upon his face, again tipped the garage-keeper handsomely, and drove his car from the yard. He turned to the right and appeared to be taking the London road, but later in the day, as has been established, the car was seen on its way to Paddock Wood, and was later observed at Tonbridge. The driver pulled up at a little tea-house half a mile from the town, ordered sandwiches and tea, which were brought to him, and which he consumed in the car. 
Late in the afternoon, the car was seen at Uckfield, and the theory generally held was that the driver was killing time. At the wayside cottage at which he stopped for tea, it was one of those little places that invite cyclists by an ill-printed board to tarry a while and refresh themselves. He had some conversation with the tenant of the cottage, a widow. She seems to have been the usual loquacious, friendly soul who tells one without reserve her business, her troubles, and a fair sprinkling of the news of the day in the shortest possible time. "'I haven't seen a paper,' said Rex Holland politely. "'It is a very curious thing that I never thought about newspapers.' "'I can get you one,' said the woman eagerly. "'You ought to read about that case.' "'The dead chauffeur?' asked Rex Holland interestedly, for that had been the item of general news which was foremost in the woman's conversation. "'Yes, sir. He was murdered in Ashdown Forest. Many's the time I've driven over there.' "'How do you know it was a murder?' "'She knew for many reasons. Her brother-in-law was gamekeeper to Lord Faring, and a colleague of his had been the man who had discovered the body, and it had appeared, as the good lady explained, that this same chauffeur was a man for whom the police had been searching in connection with a bank robbery about which much had appeared in the newspapers of the day previous. "'How very interesting!' said Mr. Holland, and took the paper from her hand. He read the description line by line. He learned that the police were in possession of important clues, and that they were on the track of the man who had been seen in the company of the chauffeur. "'Moreover,' said a most indiscreet newspaper writer, the police had a photograph showing the chauffeur standing by the side of his car, and reproductions of this photograph showing the type of machine were being circulated. "'How very interesting!' said Mr. Rex Holland again, being perfectly content in his mind, for his search of the body had revealed copies of this identical picture, and the car in which he was seated was not the car which had been photographed. From this point, a mile and a half beyond Duckfield, all trace of the car and its occupant was lost. The writer has been very careful to note the exact times and to confirm those about which there was any doubt. At 9.20 on the night when Constable Wiseman had patrolled the road before Weald Lodge and had seen Sergeant Smith flying down the road on his bicycle, and on the night of that day when Mr. Rex Holland had been seen at Uckfield, there arrived by the London train, which is due at Eastbourne at 9.20, Frank Merrill. The train, as a matter of fact, was three minutes late, and Frank, who had been in the latter part of the train, was one of the last of the passengers to arrive at the barrier. When he reached the barrier, he discovered that he had no railway ticket, a very ordinary and vexatious experience which travellers before now have endured. He searched in every pocket, including the pocket of the light ulster he wore, but without success. He was vexed, but he laughed because he had a strong sense of humour. I could pay for my ticket, he smiled, but I'd be hanged if I will. Inspector, you search that overcoat. The amused inspector complied while Frank again went through all his pockets. At his request, he accompanied the inspector to the latter's office, and there deposited on the table the contents of his pockets, his money, letters, and pocketbook. You're used to searching people, he said. See if you can find it. I'll swear I've got it about me somewhere. The obliging inspector felt probed, but without success, till suddenly, with a roar of laughter, Frank cried, "'What a stupid ass I am! I've got it in my hat!' He took off his hat, and there in the lining was a first-class ticket from London to Eastbourne. It is necessary to lay particular stress upon this incident, 
which had an important bearing upon subsequent events. He called a taxicab, drove to Weald Lodge, and dismissed the driver in the road. He arrived at Weald Lodge, by the testimony of the driver and by that of Constable Wiseman, whom the car had passed, at about 9.40. Mr. John Minnett at this time was alone. His suspicious nature would not allow the presence of servants in the house during the interview which he was to have with his nephew. He regarded servants as spies and eavesdroppers, and perhaps there was an excuse for his uncharitable view. At 9.50, ten minutes after Frank had entered the gates of Weald Lodge, a car with gleaming headlights came quickly from the opposite direction and pulled up outside the gates. P.C. Wiseman, who at this moment was less than fifty yards from the gate, saw a man descend and pass quickly into the grounds of the house. At 9.52 or 9.53 the constable, walking slowly toward the house, came abreast of the wall and, looking up, saw a light flash for a moment in one of the upper windows. He had hardly seen this when he heard two shots fired in rapid succession and a cry. Only for a moment did P.C. Wiseman hesitate. He jumped the low wall, pushed through the shrubs, and made for the side of the house from whence a flood of light fell from the open French windows of the library. He blundered into the room a pace or two, and then stopped, for the sight was one which might well arrest even an unimaginative a man as a country constable. John Minnett lay on the floor in his back, and it did not need a doctor to tell that he was dead. By his side, and almost within reach of his hand, was a revolver of a very heavy army pattern. Mechanically, the constable picked up the revolver and turned his stern face to the other occupant of the room. "'This is a bad business, Mr. Merrill,' he found his breath to say. Frank Merrill had been leaning over his uncle as the constable entered, but now stood erect, pale, but perfectly self-possessed. "'I heard the shot, and I came in,' he said. "'Stay where you are,' said the constable, and stepping quickly out onto the lawn, he blew his whistle long and shrilly, then returned to the room. This is a bad business, Mr. Merrill, he repeated. It is a very bad business, said the other in a low voice. Is this revolver yours? Frank shook his head. I've never seen it before, he said with emphasis. The constable thought as quickly as it was humanly possible for him to think. He had no doubt in his mind that this unhappy youth had fired the shots which had ended the life of a man on the floor. Stay here, he said again and again went out to blow his whistle. He walked this time on the lawn by the side of the drive toward the road. He had not taken half a dozen steps when he saw a dark figure of a man creeping stealthily along before him in the shade of the shrubs. In a second the constable was on him, had grasped him and swung him round, flashing his lantern into his prisoner's face. Instantly he released his hold. I, I, I beg your pardon, sergeant, he stammered. What's the matter, scowled the other. What's wrong with you, constable? Sergeant Smith's face was drawn and haggard. The policeman looked at him with open-mouthed astonishment. I didn't know it was you, he said. What's wrong? asked the other again, and his voice was cracked and unnatural. There's been a murder. Old minute. Shot. Sergeant Smith staggered back a pace. Good God, he said. Minute murdered? Then he did it. The young devil did it. Come and have a look, invited Wiseman, recovering his balance. I've got his nephew. No, no, I don't want to see John Minnett dead. You go back. I'll bring another constable and a doctor. He stumbled blindly along the drive into the road, and Constable Wiseman went back to the house. 
Frank was where he had left him, save that he had seated himself and was gazing steadfastly upon the dead man. He looked up as the policeman entered. "'What have you done?' he asked. "'The sergeant's gone for a doctor and another constable,' said Wiseman gravely. "'I'm afraid it will be too late,' said Frank. "'He is—' "'What's that?' There was a distant hammering and a faint voice calling for help. "'What's that?' whispered Frank again. The constable strode through the open doorway to the foot of the stairs and listened. The sound came from the upper story. He ran upstairs, mounting two at a time, and presently located the noise. It came from an end room, and somebody was hammering on the panels. The door was locked, but the key had been left in the lock, and this constable Wiseman turned, flooding the dark interior with light. "'Come out,' he said, and Jasper Cole staggered out, dazed and shaking. "'Somebody hit me on the head with a sandbag,' he said thickly. "'I heard the shot. What has happened?' "'Mr. Minnett has been killed,' said the policeman. "'Killed?' He fell back against the wall, his face working. "'Killed?' he repeated. "'Not killed!' The constable nodded. He had found the electric switch, and the passageway was illuminated. Presently the young man mastered his emotion. "'Where is he?' he asked, and Wiseman led the way downstairs. Jasper Cole walked into the room without a glance at Frank and bent over the dead man. For a long time he looked at him earnestly. Then he turned to Frank. "'You did this,' he said. "'I heard your voice and the shots. I heard you threaten him.' Frank said nothing. He merely stared at the other, and in his eyes was a look of infinite scorn. End of chapter 10《Chapter Eleven of The Man Who Knew by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Case Against Frank Merrill. Mr. Saul Arthur Mann stood by the window of his office and moodily watched the traffic passing up and down this busy city street at what was the busiest hour of the day. He stood there such a long time that the girl who had sought his help thought he must have forgotten her. May was pale and her pallor was emphasized by the black dress she wore. The terrible happening of a week before had left its impression upon her. For her it had been a week of sleepless nights, a week's anguish of mind unspeakable. Everybody had been most kind, and Jasper was as gentle as a woman. Such was the influence that he exercised over her that she did not feel any sense of resentment against him, even though she knew that he was the principal witness for the crown. He was so sincere, so honest in his sympathy, she told herself. He was so free from any bitterness against the man who he believed had killed his best friend and his most generous employer, that she could not sustain the first feeling of resentment she had felt. Perhaps it was because her great sorrow overshadowed all other emotions. Yet she was free to analyze her friendship with the man who was working day and night to send the man who loved her to a felon's doom. She could not understand herself. Still less could she understand Jasper. She looked up again at Mr. Mann as he stood by the window, his hands clasped behind him, and as she did so he turned slowly and came back to where she sat. His usual jocund face was lugubrious and worried. "'I have given more thought to this matter than I have given to any other problem I have tackled,' he said. "'I believe Mr. Merrill to be falsely accused.' and I have one or two points to make to his counsel which, when they are brought forward in court, 
will prove beyond any doubt whatever that he was innocent. I don't believe that matters are so black against him as you think. The other side will certainly bring forward the forgery and the doctor's books to supply a motive for the murder. Inspector Nash is in charge of the case, and he promised to call here at four o'clock. He looked at his watch. It wants three minutes. Have you any suggestion to offer? She shook her head. I can floor the prosecution, Mr. Mann went on, but what I cannot do is to find the murderer for certain. It is obviously one of three men. It is either Sergeant Crawley, alias Smith, about whose antecedents Mr. Minnett made an inquiry, or Jasper Cole, the secretary, or... He shrugged his shoulders. It was not necessary to say who was the third suspect. There came a knock at the door, and the clerk announced Inspector Nash. That stout and stoical officer gave a non-committal nod to Mr. Mann and a smiling recognition to the girl. "'Well, you know how matters stand, Inspector,' said Mr. Mann briskly, "'and I thought I'd ask you to come here today to straighten a few things out.' "'It is rather irregular, Mr. Mann,' said the Inspector, "'but as they've no objection at headquarters, I don't mind telling you, within limits, all that I know. "'But I don't suppose I can tell you any more than you have found out for yourself.' "'Do you really think Mr. Merrill committed this crime?' asked the girl. The inspector raised his eyebrows and pursed his lips. "'It looks uncommonly like it, miss,' he said. "'We have evidence that the bank has been robbed, and it is almost certainly proved that Merrill had access to the books and was the only person in the bank who could have faked the figures and transferred the money from one account to another without being found out. "'There are still one or two doubtful points to be cleared up, but there is the motive.' and when you've got the motive you are three parts on your way to finding the criminal. It isn't a straightforward case by any means, he confessed, and the more I go into it the more puzzled I am. I don't mind telling you this frankly. I have seen Constable Wiseman, who swears that at the moment the shots were fired he saw a light flash in the upper window. We have the statement of Mr. Cole that he was in his room, his employer having requested that he should make himself scarce when the nephew came and he tells us how somebody opened the door quietly and flashed an electric torch upon him. "'What was Cole doing in the dark?' asked Mann quickly. "'He had a headache and was lying down,' said the inspector. When he saw the light he jumped up and made for it, and was immediately slugged. The door closed upon him and was locked. Between his leaving the bed and reaching the door he heard Mr. Merrill's voice threatening his uncle and the shots. Immediately afterward he was rendered insensible.' A curious story, said Saul Arthur Mann dryly. A very curious story. The girl felt an unaccountable and altogether amazing desire to defend Jasper against the innuendo in the other's tone, and it was with difficulty that she restrained herself. I don't think it is a good story, said the inspector frankly, but that is between ourselves. And then, of course, he went on, we have the remarkable behavior of Sergeant Smith. Where is he? asked Mr. Mann. The inspector shrugged his shoulders. "'Sergeant Smith has disappeared,' he said, "'though I dare say we shall find him before long. "'He is only one. "'The most puzzling element of all is the fourth man concerned, "'the man who arrived in the motor-car "'and who was evidently Mr. Rex Holland. "'We have got a very full description of him.' "'I also have a very full description of him,' said Mr. Mann quietly, "'but I've been unable to identify him "'with any of the people in my records.' Anyway, it was his car. There was no doubt about that. And he was the murderer, said Mr. Mann. I've no doubt about that. 
nor have you. I have doubts about everything, replied the inspector diplomatically. What was in the car? asked the little man brightly. He was rapidly recovering his good humor. That I am afraid I cannot tell you, smiled the detective. Then I'll tell you, said Saul Arthur Mann, and stepping up to his desk, took a memorandum from a drawer. There were two motor rugs, two hauling coats, one white, one brown. There were two sets of motor goggles. There was a package of revolver cartridges, from which six had been extracted, a leather revolver holster, a small garden trowel, and one or two other little things. Inspector Nash swore softly under his breath. I'm blessed if I know how you found all that out, he said, with a little asperity in his voice. The car was not touched or searched until we came on the scene, and beyond myself and Sergeant Mannering of my department, nobody knows what the car contained. Saul Arthur Mann smiled, and it was a very happy and triumphant smile. You see, I know, he purred. That is one point in Merrill's favor. Yes, agreed the detective, and smiled. Why do you smile, Mr. Nash? asked the little man suspiciously. I was thinking of a county policeman who seems to have some extraordinary theories on the subject. Oh, you mean wise men, said Mann with a grin. I have interviewed that gentleman. There was a great detective lost in him, Inspector. It is lost, all right, said the detective laconically. Wiseman is very certain that Merrill committed the crime, and I think you were going to have a difficulty in persuading a jury that he didn't. You see, Merrill's story is that he came and saw his uncle, that they had a few minutes chat together, that his uncle suddenly had an attack of faintness, and that he went out of the room into the dining room to get a glass of water. While Merrill was in the dining room he heard the shots and came running back, still with the glass in his hand, and saw his uncle lying on the ground. I saw the glass, which was half filled. I was also there in time to examine the dining room and see that Mr. Merrill had spilled some of the water when he was taking it from the carafe. All that part of the story is circumstantially sound. What we cannot understand, and what a jury will never understand, is how, in the very short space of time, the murderer could have got into the room and made his escape again. The French windows were open, said Mr. Mann. All the evidence that we have is to this effect including the evidence of P.C. Wiseman. In those circumstances, how comes it that the constable, who, when he heard the shot, made straight for the room, did not meet the murderer escaping? He saw nobody in the grounds. Except Sergeant Smith, or Crawley, interspersed Saul Arthur Mann readily. I have reason to believe, and indeed reason to know, that Sergeant Smith, or Crawley, had a motive for being in the house. I supplied Mr. Minnett, who was a client of mine, with certain documents, and those documents were in a safe in his bedroom. What is more likely than that this Crawley, to whom it was vitally necessary that the documents in question should be recovered, should have entered the house in search of those documents? I don't mind telling you that they related to a fraud of which he was the author, and they were in themselves all the proof which the police would require to obtain a conviction against him. He was obviously the man who struck down Mr. Cole and whose light the constable saw flashing in the upper window. In that case he cannot have been the murderer, said the detective quickly, because the shots were fired while he was still in the room. They were almost simultaneous with the appearance of the flash at the upper window. Hm, said Saul Arthur Mann, for the moment nonplussed. The more you go into this matter, the more complicated does it become, said the police officer, with a shake of his head. 
and to my mind the clearer is the case against Merrill. With this reservation, interrupted the other, that you have to account for the movements of Mr. Rex Holland, who comes on the scene ten minutes after Frank Merrill arrives and who leaves his car. He leaves his car for a very excellent reason, he went on. Sergeant Smith, who runs away to get assistance, meets two men of the Sussex Constabulary, hurrying in response to Wiseman's whistle. One of them stands by the car, and the other comes into the house. It was, therefore, impossible for the murderer to make use of the car. Here is another point that would have you explain. He had hoisted himself on the edge of his desk and sat, an amusing little figure, his legs swinging a foot from the ground. The revolver used was a big Webley, not an easy thing to carry or conceal about your person, and undoubtedly brought to the scene of the crime by the man in the car. You will say that Merrill, who wore an overcoat, might have easily brought it in his pocket, but the absolute proof that that could not have been the case is that on his arrival by train from London, Mr. Merrill lost his ticket and very carefully searched himself, a railway inspector assisting, to discover the bit of pasteboard. He turned out everything he had in his pocket in the inspector's presence, and his overcoat, the only place where he could have concealed such a heavy weapon, was searched by the inspector himself. The detective nodded. It is a very difficult case, he agreed, and one in which I have no great heart. For, to be absolutely honest, my views are that, while it might have been Merrill, the balance of proof is that it was not. That is, of course, my unofficial view, and I shall work pretty hard to secure a conviction. I am sure you will, said Mr. Mann heartily. Must the case go into the court? asked the girl anxiously. There is no other way for it, replied the officer. You see, we have arrested him and unless something turns up, the magistrate must commit him for trial on the evidence we have secured. Poor Frank, she said softly. It is rough on him, if he is innocent, agreed Nash, but it is lucky for him if he's guilty. My experience of crime and criminals is that it is generally the obvious man who commits that crime. Only once in fifty years is he innocent, whether he is acquitted or whether he is found guilty. He offered his hand to Mr. Mann. I'll be getting along now, sir, he said. The commissioner asked me to give you all the assistance I possibly could, and I hope I have done so. What are you doing in the case of Jasper Cole? asked Mann quickly. The detective smiled. You ought to know, sir, he said, and was amused at his own little joke. Well, young lady, said Mann, turning to the girl, after the detective had gone, I think you know how matters stand. Nash suspects Cole. Jasper! she said in shocked surprise. Jasper, he repeated. But that is impossible. He was locked in his room. That doesn't make it impossible. I know of fourteen distinct cases of men who committed crimes and were able to lock themselves in their rooms, leaving the key outside. There was a case of Henry Burton, coiner. There was William Francis Rector, who killed a warder while in prison and locked the cell upon himself from the inside. There was... But there, why should I bother you with instances? That kind of trick is common enough. No, he said, it is the motive that we have to find. Do you still want me to go with you tomorrow, Miss Nuttall? he asked. I should be very glad if you would, she said earnestly. Poor dear uncle, I didn't think I could ever enter the house again. I can relieve your mind about that, he said. The will is not to be read in the house. Mr. Minnis' lawyers have arranged for the reading at their offices in Lincoln's Inn Fields. 
I have the address here somewhere. He fumbled in his pocket and took out a card. Power Commons and Co., he read, 194 Lincoln's Inn Fields. I will meet you there at three o'clock. He rumpled his untidy hair with an embarrassed laugh. I seem to have drifted into the position of guardian to you, young lady, he said. I can't say that it is an unpleasant task, although it is a great responsibility. You have been splendid, Mr. Mann, she said warmly, and I shall never forget all you have done for me. Somehow I feel that Frank will get off, and I hope, I pray, that it will not be at Jasper's expense. He looked at her in surprise and disappointment. I thought, he stopped. You thought I was engaged to Frank, and so I am, she said with heightened color. But Jasper is, I hardly know how to put it. I see, said Mr. Mann, though if the truth be told, he saw nothing which enlightened him. Punctually at three o'clock the next afternoon, they walked up the steps of the lawyer's office together. Jasper Cole was already there, and to Mr. Mann's surprise, so also was Inspector Nash, who explained his presence in a few words. There may be something in the will which will open a new viewpoint, he said. Mr. Power, the solicitor, an elderly man, inclined to rotundity, was introduced, and taking his position before the fireplace, opened the proceedings with an expression of regret as to the circumstances which had brought them together. The will of my late client, he said, was not drawn up by me. It is written in Mr. Minnett's handwriting, and revokes the only other will, one which was prepared some four years ago, and which made provisions rather different to those in the present instrument. This will, he took a single sheet of paper out of an envelope, was made last year and was witnessed by Thomas Wellington Crawley. He adjusted his pince-nest and examined the signature, late trooper of the Matabella Land Mounted Police, and by George Worrell, who was Mr. Minnis Butler at the time. Worrell died in the Eastbourne Hospital in the spring of this year. There was a deep silence. Saul Arthur Mann's face was eagerly thrust forward, his head turned slightly to one side. Inspector Nash showed an unusual amount of interest. Both men had the same thought, a new will, witnessed by two people, one of whom was dead, and the other a fugitive from justice. What did this will contain? It was the briefest of documents. To his ward he left the sum of two hundred thousand pounds, a provision which was also made in the previous will, I might add, said the lawyer, and to this he added all his shares in the Guello Deep. To his nephew, Francis Merrill, he left twenty thousand pounds. The lawyer paused and looked round the little circle and then continued. The residue of my property, movable and immovable, all my furniture, leases, shares, cash at bankers, and all interests whatsoever, I bequeath to Jasper Cole, so-called, who is at present my secretary and confidential agent. The detective and Saul Arthur Mann exchanged glances, and Nash's lips moved. How is that for a motive? he whispered. End of chapter 11《Chapter Twelve of The Man Who Knew by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Trial of Frank Merrill. The Trial of Frank Merrill on the charge that he did on the twenty-eighth day of June, in the year of our Lord one thousand nine hundred, willfully and wickedly kill and slay by a pistol-shot John Minnett, was the sensation of a season which was unusually prolific in murder trials. 
The trial took place at the Lou's Assizes in a crowded courtroom, and lasted, as we know, for sixteen days, five days of which were given to the examination-in-chief and the cross-examination of the accountants who had gone into the books of the bank. The prosecution endeavored to establish the fact that no other person but Frank Merrill could have access to the books, and that therefore no other person could have falsified them or manipulated the transfer of monies. It cannot be said that the prosecution had wholly succeeded, for when Brandon, the bank manager, was put into the witness box, he was compelled to admit that not only Frank, but he himself and Jasper Cole were in a position to reach the books. The opening speech for the Crown had been a masterly one, but that there were many weak points in the evidence and in the assumptions which the prosecution drew was evident to the merest tyro. Sir John Murphy Jackson, the Attorney General, who prosecuted, attempted to dispose summarily of certain conflictions, and it had to be confessed that his explanations were very plausible. The defense will tell us, he said, in that shrill clarion tone of his which made to quake the hearts of so many hostile witnesses, that we have not accounted for the fourth man who drove up in his car ten minutes after Merrill had entered the house and disappeared, but I am going to tell you my theory of that incident. Merrill had an accomplice who was not in custody, and that accomplice was Rex Holland. Merrill had planned and prepared this murder, because from some statement which his uncle had made he believed that not only was his whole future dependent upon destroying his benefactor and silencing forever the one man who knew the extent of his villainy, but he had in his cold, shrewd way accurately foreseen the exact consequence of such a shooting. It was a big criminal's big idea. He foresaw this trial, he said impressively. He foresaw, gentlemen of the jury, his acquittal at your hands. He foresaw a reaction which would not only give him the woman he professes to love, but in consequence place in his hands the disposal of her considerable fortune. Why should he shoot John Minnett, you may ask, and I reply to that question with another. What would have happened had he not shot his uncle? He would have been a ruined man. The doors of his uncle's house would have been closed to him. The legacy would have been revoked. The marriage for which he had planned so long would have been an unrealized dream. He knew the extent of the fortune which was coming to Miss Nuttall. Mr. Minnett made two wills, in both of which he left an identical sum to his ward. The first of these, revoked by the second and containing the same provision, was witnessed by the man in the dock. He knew, too, that the Rhodesian gold mine the shares of which were held by John Minnett on the girl's behalf, was likely to prove a very rich proposition, and I suggest that the information coming to him as Mr. Minnett's secretary, he deliberately suppressed that information for his own purpose. What had he to gain? I ask you to believe that if he is acquitted, he will have achieved all that he ever hoped to achieve. There was a little murmur in the court. Frank Merrill, leaning on the ledge of the dock, looked down at the girl in the body of the court, and their eyes met. He saw the indignation in her face and nodded with a little smile, then turned again to the counsel with that eager, half-quizzical look of interest which the girl had so often seen upon his handsome face. Much will be made, in the course of this trial, of the presence of another man, and the defense will endeavor to secure capital out of the fact that the man Crawley, who it was suggested was in the house for an improper purpose, has not been discovered. As to the fourth man, the driver of the motor-car, there seems little doubt that he was an accomplice of Merrill. This mysterious Rex Holland, 
who has been identified by Mrs. Totney of Uckfield, spent the whole of the day wandering about Sussex, obviously having one plan in his mind, which was to arrive at Mr. Minnis' house at the same time as his confederate. You will have the taxi driver's evidence that when Merrill stepped down, after being driven from the station, he looked left and right, as though he were expecting somebody. The plan to some extent miscarried. The accomplice arrived ten minutes too late. On some pretext or other, Merrill probably left the room. I suggest that he did not go into the dining room, but that he went out into the garden and was met by his accomplice, who handed him the weapon with which this crime was committed. It may be asked by the defense why the accomplice, who was presumably Rex Holland, did not himself commit the crime. I could offer two or three alternative suggestions, all of which are feasible. The deceased man was shot at close quarters and was found in such an attitude as to suggest that he was wholly unprepared for the attack. We know that he was in some fear and that he invariably went armed, yet it is fairly certain that he made no attempt to draw his weapon, which he certainly would have done had he been suddenly confronted by an armed stranger. I do not pretend that I am explaining the strange relationship between Merrill and this mysterious forger. Merrill is the only man who has seen him and has given a vague and somewhat confused description of him. He was a man with a short, close-clipped beard, is Merrill's description. The woman who served him with tea near Uckfield describes him as a youngish man with a dark moustache, but otherwise clean-shaven. There is no reason, of course, why he should not have removed his beard, but as against that suggestion we will call evidence to prove that the man seen driving with the murder chauffeur was invariably a man with a moustache and no beard, so that the balance of probability is on the side of the supposition that Merrill is not telling the truth. An unknown client with a large deposit at his bank would not be likely constantly to alter his appearance. If he were a criminal, as we know him to be, there would be another reason why he should not excite suspicion in this way. His address covered the greater part of a day, but he returned to the scene in the garden to the supposed meeting of the two men and to the murder. Saw like a man sitting with Frank's solicitor scratched his nose and grinned. I have never heard a more ingenious piece of reconstruction, he said, though of course the whole thing is palpably absurd. As a theory it was no doubt excellent, but men are not sentenced to death on theories, however ingenious they may be. Probably nobody in the court so completely admired the ingenuity as the man most affected. At the lunch interval on the day on which this theory was put forward, he met a solicitor and saw Arthur Mann in the bare room in which such interviews are permitted. It was really fascinating to hear him, said Frank, as he sipped the cup of tea which they had brought him. I almost began to believe that I had committed the murder. But isn't it rather alarming? Will the jury take the same view, he asked, a little troubled. The solicitor shook his head. Unsupported theories of that sort do not go well with juries, and of course the whole story is so flimsy and so improbable that it will go for no more than a piece of clever reasoning. Did anybody see you at the railway station? Frank shook his head. I suppose hundreds of people saw me, but would hardly remember me. Was there anyone on the train who knew you? No, said Frank after a moment's thought. There were six people in my carriage until we got to lose, but I think I told you that and you have not succeeded in tracing any of them. It is most difficult to get into touch with those people, said the lawyer. Think of the scores of people one travels with, 
without ever remembering what they looked like or how they were dressed. If you had been a woman, traveling with women, every one of your five fellow passengers would have remembered you and would have recalled your hat. Frank laughed. There are certain advantages in being a man, he said. How do you think the case is going? They have offered no evidence yet. I think you will agree, Mr. Mann, he said respectfully, for Saul Arthur Mann was a power in legal circles. None at all, the little fellow agreed. Frank recalled the first day he had seen him, with his hat perched on the back of his head in his shabby, genteel exterior. Oh, by Jove, he said, I suppose they will be trying to fasten the death of that man upon me that we saw in Gray Square. Saul Arthur Mann nodded. They have not put that in the indictment, he said, nor the case of the chauffeur. You see, your conviction will rest entirely upon this present charge, and both the other matters are subsidiary. Frank walked thoughtfully up and down the room, his hands behind his back. I wonder who Rex Holland is, he said, half to himself. You still have your theory? asked the lawyer, eyeing him keenly. Frank nodded. And you still would rather not put it into words? Much rather not, said Frank gravely. He returned to the court and glanced round for the girl, but she was not there. The rest of the afternoon's proceedings, taken up as they were with the preliminaries of the case, bored him. It was on the twelfth day of the trial that Jasper Cole stepped on to the witness stand. He was dressed in black and was paler than usual, but he took the oath in a firm voice and answered the questions which were put to him without hesitation. The story of Frank's quarrel with his uncle, of the forged checks, and of his own experience on the night of the crime filled the greater part of the forenoon, and it was in the afternoon when Brian Bennett, one of the most brilliant barristers of his time, stood up to cross-examine. Had you any suspicion that your employer was being robbed? I had a suspicion, replied Jasper. Did you communicate your suspicion to your employer? Jasper hesitated. No, he replied at last. Why do you hesitate? asked Bennett sharply. Because, although I did not directly communicate my suspicions, I hinted to Mr. Minnett that he should have an independent audit. So you thought the books were wrong? I did. In these circumstances, asked Bennett slowly, do you not think it was very unwise of you to touch those books yourself? When did I touch them? asked Jasper quickly. I suggest that on a certain night you came to the bank and remained in the bank by yourself, examining the ledgers on behalf of your employer, and that during that time you handled at least three books in which these falsifications were made. That is quite correct, said Jasper, after a moment's thought, but my suspicions were general and did not apply to any particular group of books. But did you not think it was dangerous? Again the hesitation. It may have been foolish and if I had known how matters were developing, I should certainly not have touched them. You do admit that there were several periods of time, from seven in the evening until nine, and from nine-thirty until eleven-fifteen, when you were absolutely alone in the bank? That is true, said Jasper. And during those periods you could, had you wished, and had you been a forger, for example, or had you any reason for falsifying the entries, have made those falsifications? I admit there was time, said Jasper. Would you describe yourself as a friend of Frank Merrill's? Not a close friend, replied Jasper. Did you like him? I cannot say that I was fond of him, was the reply. He was a rival of yours? 
In what respect? Counsel shrugged his shoulders. He was very fond of Miss Nuttall. Yes. And she was fond of him? Yes. Did you not aspire to pay your addresses to Miss Nuttall? Jasper Cole looked down to the girl and may averted her eyes. Her cheeks were burning and she had a wild desire to flee from the court. If you mean that I love Miss Nuttall, said Jasper Cole in his quiet, even tone, I replied that I did. You even secured the act of support of Mr. Minnett? I never urged the matter with Mr. Minnett, said Jasper. So that if he moved on your behalf, he did so without your knowledge? Without my pre-knowledge, corrected the witness. He told me afterward that he had spoken to Miss Nuttall, and I was considerably embarrassed. I understand you were a man of curious habits, Mr. Cole. We are all people of curious habits, smiled the witness. But you in particular, you were an Orientalist, I believe? I have studied Oriental languages and customs, said Jasper shortly. Have you ever extended your study to the realm of hypnotism? I have, replied the witness. Have you ever made experiments? On animals, yes. On human beings? No, I have never made experiments on human beings. Have you also made a study of narcotics? The lawyer leaned forward over the table and looked at the witness between half-closed eyes. I have made experiments with narcotic herbs and plants, said Jasper, after a moment's hesitation. I think you should know that the career which was planned for me was that of a doctor, and I have always been very interested in the effects of narcotics. You know of a drug called Cannabis Indica? asked the counsel, consulting his paper. Yes, it is Indian hemp. Is there an infusion of Cannabis Indica to be obtained? I do not think there is, said the other. I can probably enlighten you because I see now the trend of your examination. I once told Frank Merrill, many years ago, when I was very enthusiastic, that an infusion of Cannabis Indica, combined with tincture of opium and hyoscine, produce certain effects. It is inclined to sap the willpower of a man or a woman who is constantly absorbing this poison in small doses, suggested the counsel. That is so. The counsel now switched off on a new tack. Do you know the East of London? Yes, slightly. Do you know Silver's Rents? Yes. Do you ever go to Silver's Rents? Yes, I go there very regularly. The readiness of the reply astonished both Frank and the girl. She had been feeling more and more uncomfortable as the cross-examination continued, and had a feeling that she had in some way betrayed Jasper Cole's confidence. She had listened to the cross-examination which revealed Jasper as a scientist with something approaching amazement. She had known of the laboratory, but had associated the place with those entertaining experiments that an idle dabbler in chemistry might undertake. For a moment she doubted and searched her mind for some occasion when he had practiced his medical knowledge. Dimly she realized that there had been some such occasion, and then she remembered that it had always been Jasper Cole who had concocted the strange drafts which had so relieved the headache to which, when she was a little younger, she had been something of a martyr. Could he? She struggled hard to dismiss the thought as being unworthy of her, and now, when the object of his visits to Silver's Rents was under examination, she found her curiosity growing. Why did you go to Silver's Rents? There was no answer. I will repeat my question. With what object did you go to Silver's Rents? I declined to answer that question, said the man in the box coolly. I merely tell you that I went there frequently.
And you refuse to say why? I refuse to say why, repeated the witness. The judge on the bench made a little note. I put it to you, said counsel, speaking impressively, that it was in Silver's rents that you took on another identity. That is probably true, said the other, and the girl gasped. He was so cool, so self-possessed, so sure of himself. I suggest to you, the counsel went on, that in those rents Jasper Cole became Rex Holland. There was a buzz of excitement, a sudden soft clamor of voices through which the usher's harsh demand for silence cut like a knife. Your suggestion is an absurd one, said Jasper, without heat, and I presume that you are going to produce evidence to support so infamous a statement. What evidence I produce, said counsel with asperity, is a matter for me to decide. It is also a matter for the witness, interposed the soft voice of the judge. As you have suggested that Holland was a party to the murder, and as you are inferring that Rex Holland is Jasper Cole, it is presumed that you will call evidence to support so serious a charge. I am not prepared to call evidence, my lord, and if your lordship thinks the question should not have been put, I am willing to withdraw it. The judge nodded and turned his head to the jury. You will consider that question as not having been put, gentlemen, he said. Doubtless counsel is trying to establish the fact that one person might just as easily have been Rex Holland as another. There is no suggestion that Mr. Cole went to Silver's Rents, which I understand is in a very poor neighborhood, with any illegal intent, or that he was committing any crime or behaving in any way improperly by paying such frequent visits. There may be something in the witness's life associated with that poor house which has no bearing on the case and which he does not desire should be ventilated in this court. It happens to many of us, the judge went on, that we have associations which it would embarrass us to reveal. This little incident closed that portion of the cross-examination, and counsel went on to the night of the murder. "'When did you come to the house?' he asked. "'I came to the house soon after dark.' "'Had you been in London?' "'Yes, I walked from Bexhill.' "'It was dark when you arrived?' "'Yes, nearly dark.' "'The servants had all gone out?' "'Yes.' "'Was Mr. Minnett pleased to see you?' "'Yes, he had expected me earlier in the day.' Did he tell you that his nephew was coming to see him? I knew that. You say he suggested that you should make yourself scarce? Yes. And as you had a headache, you went upstairs and lay down on your bed? Yes. What were you doing in Bexhill? I came down from town and got into the wrong portion of the train. A junior leaned over and whispered quickly to his leader. I see, I see, said the counsel petulantly. Your ticket was found at Bexhill. Have you ever seen Mr. Rex Holland? he asked. Never. You have never met any person of that name? Never. In this tame way the cross-examination closed, as cross-examinations have a habit of doing. By the time the final addresses of counsel had ended, and the judge had finished a masterly summing up, there was no doubt whatever in the mind of any person in the court as to what the verdict would be. The jury was absent from the box for twenty minutes and returned a verdict of not guilty. The judge discharged Frank Merrill without comment, and he left the court a free but ruined man. End of chapter 12 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.